At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. And then there's another side of it that does free space optics. And this is sending communication uh, through optical light, through actually coding the wavelength of light in a laser and sending that. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Kodiak Shack podcast. Today, we have Ian Aishan. Uh Did I say it right? Yep. yep okay. I, I normally screw it up. The audience knows because they hear me do it almost every episode. Uh, but before we get to him, uh, we'll talk about some admin. Again, thank you, everybody, for all the support and all the listens. Please share and uh, like, subscribe, do all the fun stuff on all the uh, social media. We're on Instagram. And uh, so... Check all that stuff out. We try to make content you all appreciate and enjoy. So let us know if we're not providing you something you're looking for. Uh, getting into the uh, episode today. So uh, Ian did 23 years on the active duty military side, worked in test, and we're going to talk about that. Uh, and then he also, while doing his test duties, uh, did a lot of stuff on the innovations uh, side of the house. So he went to MIT, uh, the Sloan Institute there, I believe for uh, AI um, stuff, and he can talk more about it because I'm terrible at intros. He's a director at Illyria currently. He went to the presidential leadership. Uh, I guess he's a scholar for the presidential leadership. And you can then call he, it that, sure. What's that? Perfect. I yeah. think you can and, call it that, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and then uh, the, he also went to the DOD Joint AI Center. So he has a lot of uh, AI and uh, a lot of smart space and all the fun stuff that I know nothing about. Uh, so Ian, thank you for being here. Uh, tell us about yourself. No, I appreciate you having me on. Um, as you said, 23 years Air Force, I just retired. Uh, so most of my Air Force career was in the Intel and Special Operations world. Um, I ended up, you, you mentioned test, I moved over to the developmental test world. I was at Edwards for about two years from 2019 to 2021. Um, I started, if we're talking mainly on the innovation side, um, I started working that on the Intel side of things and the Special Operations side back in around 2016 and was lucky enough to, to be stationed at Beale Air Force Base, very close to uh, San Francisco and, and Google. And what, what ended up happening is the Air Force 
uh, started a really large project with Google called Project Maven. Uh, it was an artificial intelligence project and it was the Air Force and really the DOD um, focusing on artificial intelligence in a couple different aspects. And some of those were going to be intelligence related. I happened to be at the base and, and with the unit that was doing that. And so I started bringing a team down to Google every week to, to start working through that process. Um, in doing so, got exposed to uh, not only Stanford Design School, but the Graduate School of Business and really a lot of other people, uh, mainly veterans actually, who were out in that space, um, who understood the problems of the DoD and really wanted to help on the innovation side of things. And so we started meeting up and started hanging out a little bit. And then you, we figured out ways to do a little bit more. Um, that led to helping out with not only uh, startup investments, but uh, startup scouting, trying to find the right ones for the military. Um, Moved over to Edwards, did it on the developmental test side. And so Edwards does all fixed wing developmental tests for the Air Force. Other than the F-15, everything else is handled there. Uh, B-2, you saw the B-21 that just got announced and unveiled uh, about a month ago. So that's at Palmdale, at Clamp 42, just down the road from Edwards Air Force Base. Um, also, all of the AI and cyber developmental test happens there. Uh, the test pilot school is there. There's just it, the entire wing and and kind of ethos and culture is revolves around that test methodology and the idea is that um, everything we're doing is really testing a hypothesis and so uh, there's no failure it's you know did we learn something and we learned does this thing work or does it not work and, uh, and I thought that mentality was a great one to carry on um, from there I moved on to the chief of staff strategic studies group so working for General Brown and General Allen at the Pentagon. And our job was really to write emerging technology uh, strategy, not only for the U.S. Air Force, but also for the U.K., uh, French, and German Air Force. So I spent my last two years or so um, in D.C. working at that office, and uh, we loved it so much, me and the family, that we ended up, I retired out of here and stayed in the local area. Awesome. So I have a lot of questions uh, sure. from your background. So uh, first off, uh, kind of talking about uh, your experience at Edwards, how was it different? Because the Air Force is not an organization that's like, hey, throw something at the wall and see what sticks. So how different was it to go somewhere and say like, hey, we're not we're not failing, we're just learning. Uh, how, how did that kind of change your perspective and your and your experience there? I think so. The perspective was always there. That's something I had done for a long time. What it did is it really put a solid structure behind the perspective. Um, when when you walk around at Edwards, you can see you know the first uh, rocket flight that the Air Force had, had done, first hypersonic uh, mission. There, you really can't throw a rock without hitting a first uh, of some sort. I mean, all those aircraft are there. A lot of the same people are there. Engineers that were you know there in the '70s or even the '50s and '40s before that, their kids are there now. Um, and so you. Edwards is not uh, the coolest looking location. Actually, I love the way it looks. I love the lake bed. Um, but if you really want to figure out what's going to happen in the Air Force today and what's going to happen in the next 20 years, that's the place to go. And so, like I said, it, it put a structure around things that I was already doing. Um, one of the things that was really focused on in the test community is, sure, you, you throw something at the wall and see what sticks, but you're doing that with a lot of work beforehand because you're opening yourself up to a risk. Um, a good example is that B-21 that we unveiled uh, about a month ago, it's going to fly for the first time. A test pilot is going to have to take off in that aircraft and they have to assume that it's going to work and it's going to land safely. Now, they don't just throw it at the wall and see what sticks. All of that's being done in simulation. Um, there's a lot of work being done to make sure that the structural integrity of that aircraft is where it needs to be. There's a lot of modeling in sim on the digital twin that's being done to try to, to make sure that it's going to do exactly what we think it's going to do. And then you have a test pilot 
who takes it up in the air and makes sure that it actually does that correctly. And so we've mitigated all the risk that we can mitigate using those digital twin modeling and SIM, um, a lot of the different, uh, like I said, structural design challenges and testing that happens there. At the same time, there is at some point, someone's going to have to just step up and actually do that job. And so um, you try as much as you can to limit the risk. And then when you do take risk, you have to understand exactly what the risk is you're taking. Can you mitigate it anymore? And if you can't, you move forward based on a very sound strategy. Um, and, and I think that's what it gave me is this, this scientific process for test is the scientific process. I mean, it, it is the same process and that process can be applied to innovation or anytime you're trying something new. We here at the Kodiak Shack podcast would like to welcome our new sponsor, Adamus Cyber. Working with the military means there are some minimum cybersecurity requirements that are in every contract. Complying with these requirements can be painfully slow and really take your company's focus off your military customers and end users. Thankfully, the team at Adamus has simplified the process exclusively for small businesses working with the military. It should be expected that security requirements are going to be a part of working with the military, but they don't have to be difficult. Learn why prior guests on the podcast like Arun from Ops Lab or Brian from Rescon use Atomist to comply with the NIST 800-171, DFARS 7012, and CMMC cybersecurity requirements in their contracts. Check out their website at www.atomistcyber.com and tell them you heard about them from the Kodiak Shack podcast. Their website will be in the show notes. We appreciate all the companies that want to work with the military, and we understand working with the government isn't always the easiest thing, uh, but we appreciate companies like Atomist that make it just a little bit easier. And I think one thing that people probably understand, maybe they don't consciously understand it, but, you know, you look at Chuck Yeager, you look at test pilots, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, the the stuff they were testing, there was, there was very little modeling. There were almost no mm -hmm. computers, you know, all that kind of stuff. So when they were, they were truly seeing if stuff was airworthy and feasible, capable of doing what it does. But nowadays there's, there's so much SIM and modeling and all that going on, but everything's so much more complex. You know, it's not, it's, it's not just, can it fly? It's, can a computer fly it like an F-16 or an F-22, F-35? All of these things are fly-by-wire. So you're, the pilot is not interacting with the flight controls. So it's really a computer interpreting what a pilot wants and then providing that output in the way you expect it. Uh, so it's probably got its own set of, uh, of, uh, you know, concerning, uh, aspects to it for, for everybody who doesn't understand, uh, for a command chief. So now you're command chief at Edwards, right? Or you were, at that point, yep. and, uh, so what, what does that, what does that mean? Like, what are you doing just for people who haven't ever interacted with someone who's in that position? Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that the command chief can do. So it all depends on the commander at the time. Um, so you were hired by that commander to help them with their mission of running that base and running that mission. Um, and so I could say I was there when COVID started. And so my mission and my job pre-COVID was very different post-COVID or overall it was the same. Uh, I could say that the day-to-day -day activities were very different. And so pre-COVID, the job was not only making sure that we had met all the milestones that we needed to with all of these test aircraft. So lots of project management goes on at Edwards Air Force Base because there are so many different projects being tested. So new aircraft, 
um, all the way to the B-52 is still running test missions. And so making sure that we're ready for all those test missions, making sure that all the pieces to that are ready to go, making sure that the people are taken care of so they have everything they need to do that mission. Uh, there were 11,000 people that worked on that base and we had 700 houses, we had two schools. So making sure the schools, the CDCs, the fire stations, I mean, it, it, it comes down to almost a city manager type role. You're doing a lot of city management um, all the way to operational support to HR as far as the family support that needs to happen um, and then working with the city. So luckily, we had a lot of relationships developed with not only uh, this Los Angeles, but Los Angeles County, Kern County and San Bernardino County. Uh, because the base kind of rests right in the middle of these three counties that when COVID happened, all of that changed. Our mission, uh, we were still doing test missions, um, but a little bit less so because of what was happening with COVID and the amount of people we had at work every day. And a lot of that work was working with the local community to make sure that we were able to get toilet paper onto the base and make sure we could get food and chicken and figuring out what was LA County about to do and how would that affect our base? What kind of decisions were we going to make at the base and how would that affect them? Um, and then also Plant 42 is part of Edwards Air Force Base. And Plant 42, it's, a, it's an interesting location because it's a government-owned contract-operated base. So the government owns the base, the government owns the land, um, but the the Lockheeds and the Northrop's and the the prime contractors, they're, they're working and they're working on Air Force projects. So there was a lot of interaction with those contractors to make sure, and, and those companies to make sure we were all in lockstep as we move forward and trying to, one, figure out what this whole COVID thing was. Um, so it's a mix of all the things that you were doing before, uh, everything you would think that as a, as a leader you have to do as far as supporting families and supporting mission, but it also added that city manager aspect that uh, I hadn't really had before that time. Yeah, and you said you were uh, you spent time at the Pentagon as you were kind of finishing up your uh, tenure in the active duty military. And uh, so you talked about, I, I believe I understood correctly, kind of like future plans and integration of technology. So as a organization that in my personal perspective, it seems like it's difficult to onboard tech, like in a more streamlined manner. So how do you view that? Not as like a one-off innovation cell trying to create something, but more like this is our long-term vector for at the Air Force and probably the DOD, I would assume. Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, as I left Edwards, I was selected to jump on a, a team that General Brown uh, the chief of staff has. It's called the Strategic Studies Group. So this is a small team. There's only a few Americans on the team. The other is the lead exchange officer from the UK, uh, a lead exchange officer from France, another one from Germany, and then a, a liaison officer from Japan. And so our team was tasked with not only handling um, large-scale innovation things, so things like running the innovation SEIs or special experience identifiers, helping AppWorks with their momentum fund and some of the funding, the squadron innovation funds, um, we ran some large um, emerging technology products or projects. So if you saw Aura rings or Garmin watches running around the Air Force, our team was was the one helping get that um, mixed in with a large prime contractor. Yep. So um, got my ring here, and we were we were building that in not only to uh, to try to identify the flu and identify COVID, um, but then use that and see how it can be used for readiness. A lot of the work that the Space Force is doing now, where they're you'll you'll probably see headlines of using Oura rings and Garmin watches and these different wearable technologies to get rid of the PT test, 
It's a great thing. A lot of the things they're using were lessons learned out of our project. Um, and so I say all that to say that our job was to, to look forward, to find ways in which maybe industry and commercial technology could help solve problems in the Air Force and then connect them with the people who could make that decision. So we had some budget, uh, but mainly our budget was meant to, to help teams at bases. So this is where the momentum funds came in to help AFWorks execute that money in order to help teams across the Air Force uh, scale ideas that they had. Um, but we didn't have this set budget where I could say, hey, I want to spend a million on this or a million on that. What we ended up doing is doing a lot of meetings with different industries, with different uh, commercial startups, just to figure out what was in the realm of the possible. Um, and then when we were in meetings with Air Force Futures or A3 or A2 or whatever side of the Air Force it was, and they said, you know what, we're really looking at quantum key distribution, which is a, a quantum encryption, essentially. Um, they were interested in that. We could say, you know what, we've found five different companies. Here's what we think about them. You probably need to talk to these CEOs. They're going to be able to, to help you through that and connect them. And then as those two, meaning that government organization and that commercial company connected and they said, you know what, we want to do something. We then had to have an understanding of not only acquisition, but how to spend money. And this is where this is a long way of me answering your question. You said, how does this relate to, you know, the airmen at any base trying to, to do a project? And it's all the things are about the same. You've got you've got a problem you want to solve. You have a potential solution that you want to test or try a hypothesis around it of whether what's going to work and what's not going to work. At some point, you have to spend some resources. A lot of the time, the resources we have within our control are time. And, and our own energy. And that's something we can just decide depending on uh, where we are in the organization. But when it comes down to money, understanding how and where to legally use money is a big deal. Um, if you are at, from the, if you're an E5 or a, you know, a lieutenant or a staff sergeant, knowing how to use a government purchase card at a squadron level is huge because not everybody understands how to use it. And everybody gets so worried about the risk associated with using it illegally or wrong that sometimes they just shy away from it altogether. But if you can learn how to use it correctly, it's a powerful tool and it's it's a contract vehicle. It's a micro purchase vehicle that you have. As you get access to a little bit more money, maybe at the squadron, at the group, at the wing level, now you still have to understand how do you spend money, how do you do it legally, and how do you push that across to a commercial company in order to solve your hopeful problem or hopefully solve your problem. And the types of contract vehicles change and the amounts may change, but the entire process is the exact same. I mean, that's something you start... Uh, hopefully at the, the lowest level possible with the lowest amount of money. That way, when you make a mistake, you make a very um, less risky mistake. You make one that really doesn't affect too many people. Um, and you don't, so you don't make those mistakes, you know, when you're talking about millions of dollars. And one thing, talking to uh, previous group commanders and wing commanders and things like that, uh, what I've been informed of, obviously I've never been in those positions, but the uh, a lot of the money that is allocated annually is, is already earmarked for something. So a oh, lot of, all their, of it is. Yeah. So they, all of it is. aside from SIF and momentum funds and things like that, they don't really have a lot of money. Just like you said, your organization, you know, didn't have a lot. They kind of don't either. So are you taking the lead or kind of providing people in that organization with the expertise and the, Hey, this is how you solve that problem. Or is that kind of a different organization that kind of helps them get from start to finish? It depends on the project. So on the wearables project, I was one of those people. And I, and I think if it's a project that I'm uh, excited by and really interested in, and I think will help, and I have the bandwidth, that's the other thing is 
um, trying to have the bandwidth to to make sure that these things start moving, then you can you can fulfill that role. But your task or your time limited. You can only do that for so many projects. Um, I'll say even SIF and Momentum Fund. That's technically O and M money. That was not budgeted years ago. So General Goldfein started that. Um, that was with SIF, and then I Momentum Fund started his last year uh, in the position. But that's O and M. That's money that years ago. We said, this is what we need to use. We, we, we're going to need this money to do different things. And they've decided, they as senior leadership have decided to not buy certain things and instead use that money for this. And they get to do that. And what ends up happening is after a few years, if you decide that you're using this over and over again, now as a leader, you have to start budgeting for it. And that's the weirdest thing in the Air Force because most of the time, the money that you're budgeting, you will never see it as a commander. So that group commander that says, hey, three years from now, I think my group's going to need this much money he or she will never take it or get to use the money that they really fought hard for. But what they're doing is they're leaving the organization better than they found it and setting up their predecessor um, to, to have even more opportunities to do great things. Um, so I, I wanted to make sure that that was clear. So we're hopefully going to have, you know, at some point, maybe SIF and Momentum Fund will be some sort of budget allocation that'll uh, be palmed across the years. But as of right now, it's not set up that way. And it's something that I know in my experience, I, I was an innovation lead at a base and, uh, and that was, it was useful because it gave us the opportunity to actually, like you said, make some small bets, make some mm -hmm. decisions and actually do something rather than just going to the group, going to the wing, the wing asking the numbered air force for, you know, to buy this thing, which just takes forever and ever. So, uh, so that's, that's good. And I think in my, in my time in the military, uh, active duty wise was, uh, you definitely saw that they were they were making changes. They were trying to, uh, you know, not just do what we've always done. They're trying to change it, like you said, for the next generation. And and hopefully people keep doing that and, and we get some benefits, you know. Down now, I, I know you'll and you'll see it, especially if you look on social media. There's a there, there there's a lot of things where people are saying, you know, the the Air Force as a whole doesn't care. And, and whether the. I don't think the organization itself does care. I think the people within the organization, 99% of them, uh, want to do things differently and want to get rid of waste and want to, um, and by waste, I mean wasted time and wasted processes and just bureaucracy in general. Um, those are the people. The people are in positions that are governed by an organization and the organization itself is a bureaucratic organization. I um, mean, if you think, I've got friends at uh, Google and Microsoft and Amazon and, you know, Compared to the DOD, they're very forward-leaning companies, and they are. But if you look at some of the things that they try to do within those companies, they can't move the needle. Um, and that's because the organization is really large. Microsoft is a massive organization with a lot of checks and balances and governance. And that happens as a company grows from 10 people to 50 to 100 to 1,000 to 100,000 people. They start developing processes to, for efficiency. Those processes are built for efficiency. They're not built to do new things. And so even they, you know, we look from the inside of the Air Force at these outside companies and think that they can, they can move mountains and do these crazy things. And when you compare them to the DOD, they can. Um, but when you compare them to other companies, sometimes they have a hard time doing it because of efficiencies that were created in the bureaucracy. They keep some of those things from happening. Yeah. And, and I think uh, I would, I would tell some younger people when I was still active duty and, and they would say, why didn't the Air Force do X, Y, and Z? And it's at some point you just have to not expect the Air Force to be something it's not. Like it's a military organization. It's it's large. That's a good way to put it, it. Yeah, because you can't you can't want it to be what you think the solution is. Because one, you probably don't know the whole picture as a captain in a fighter squadron. Yeah. Uh, but two, like you said, like 
at some point the organization is so large, every solution cannot be bespoke. It has right. to just be a generic solution to a problem. So, uh, oh, did you have one more thing? No, I just, I, I loved how you phrased that. You know, even as I was deciding whether to, to exit the Air Force or not, I I wasn't at a point where I was um, disgruntled or mad at the Air Force. I was actually, I'm very thankful. Where I am today is because of the 23 years I spent in the Air Force and where my family is today is because of that time. Um, at the same time, I moved out to D.C., uh, and quickly the Air Force asked me to, to look at moving again. And that wasn't something that worked well for my family. And so I had a son in high school and he had just got to start his freshman year when we moved out here and he was actually doing really well with it. And so I couldn't rip him out of that. And so there was a point where the goals and my priorities within me and my family did not align to what the Air Force offered. And so it was time for me to make a change and to exit. Now, and I'm glad I did it at a time where I wasn't disgruntled so I could leave on good terms and be really happy and thankful for my time. And it just, it no longer aligned with what my family needed. I mean, it did for so long. It's, it's provided a, a lot of great things for my family, but at this point it, do, it doesn't. Um, I'm still staying on to help with some things uh, in, a, in a, we'll call it a volunteer capacity um, to allow me to kind of focus on that mission-driven organization um, at the same time while adding stability for my family. So the uh, so we'll kind of jump into some of your experiences before we talk sure. to uh, Illyria. But the, uh, so you defense ventures fellow uh so we'll talk a little bit about that but then in addition just kind of expand upon some of the experiences you got while you were in the military and kind of sure. how they helped shame uh, shape your perspective yeah i think i think everybody in the military is the sum and really of any organization is the sum of all of those experiences you're the only one who has the experiences that you have um some of the unique ones that i was able to to jump on is uh, i helped build this program called the defense ventures fellowship it's an afworks led program. Um, and the idea was, what if we put people instead of Skillbridge, by the way, great program, but you gain this really great knowledge and network, and then you leave the Air Force, which is great for you as you transition. But what if we did that a little bit earlier? What if we hit you when you were that lieutenant or that staff sergeant, we put you in a company, we let you hang out there and learn uh, blockchain or venture capital or some sort of emerging technology. Then you come back to your unit with that knowledge and network so that when that unit has problems, you can help them solve those problems. And you come with a completely new, um, maybe way of thinking, approach to a problem. You just, you get to, to add value to the organization in maybe a way you couldn't before. Um, I was able to send a lot of people through that program when I was a command chief. And finally, when I got on a, into a staff position, um, I was able to experience it for myself. And so I went to a venture capital firm in New York. It was uh, called Insight Partners. They do SaaS-based, so software-based investing and they've got about 90 billion dollars under management and all that means is they're big and they move a lot of money around and what it allowed me to do is, is scout companies um, i got to dig into about 60 different companies and um, look at their tech figure out what was good what worked what didn't meet their ceos meet their teams um, actually go through the process of, of investing in those companies and so you get to dig into all the the guts of the company every every legal issue, everything they're doing, um, every piece of tech, and analyze that company and say whether you think that company is going to be worth money in the future or not. And then if so, that venture capital firm will invest money and then help that company grow. That allowed me to, to 
scout a lot of technologies, meet those CEOs, understand what was in the realm of the possible on some cutting edge technology. Um, and then I brought that back to my active duty job in the Air Force and use that to help connections across uh, Cybercom, AFCyber, um, the A staff, and so the, the headquarters staff in the Pentagon, along with squadrons and groups. So, so when I was going around the Air Force and I heard of a problem that somebody was having, instead of just having this Rolodex of military uh, members and government civilians that I could send them, I could say, you know what? You should talk to this CEO. He's actually, you know, working on a similar problem. And he's got a really unique solution and connect those two people. Um, it also helped as people were transitioning because I was able to connect them with this industry professional and they started to learn, well, maybe I, I want to do software development on the outside or maybe I want to do financial um, planning or other jobs. And so it gave them um, a network different from the one they had that could that they could then use to merge and it, it de-risked that transition that they were going to make and it did the same for me as I made my transition. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership. We're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Well, and the, uh, we've talked multiple times on the podcast about the new unmasking of the having the masters, uh, which, you know, for or not for either way, one thing I think is there's a lot of different ways to gain experience and exposure and all of this knowledge base. And I think if it's, if it's not a master's, it can be one of these things. It can be a defense, you know, a fellowship. It can be a lot of these different, uh, the Stanford Ignite, uh, yeah, Stanford Ignite program. That is a great program. It's one that I never got to apply to. Just the timing never worked out, but I sent multiple people through that program and, and I haven't found anybody to say a bad thing about it. And I think that's that's something that I would, we have a lot of younger, you know, we have some fighter pilots my age and a lot of younger military people who listen to the podcast. And one thing that I, I try to do is when I was a lieutenant, a captain, I didn't, I didn't even know there was anything other than flying SOS, yep. ACSC. And now it's, you know, all these different organizations and opportunities that whether it expands their horizons in their career field or just in life, they're all good opportunities, you know? Yeah, I can't find, I haven't found one that won't help you in the military, even if it uh, just gets you to think a little bit differently. So even if the opportunity doesn't sound like it's flying aircraft or maintaining aircraft or um, perimeter security, these things that are really easy to 
to figure out how they apply to maybe your job in the military. I, I can't find one that doesn't that won't help that person as they move forward in their in in life, um, in positions in the military or outside. I had this, uh, I had this idea actually right before, uh, COVID hit, we were talking about COVID earlier, but, uh, right before COVID, I had this idea where the air force should open up all TDY opportunities, pretty much just like a massive list of TDYs and anyone can go to any TDY. So, you know, you're, you're a mechanic or you're in maintenance and you want to go to advanced marksman school done, you know, because again, it's just, it's just an experience. It's something that can give you a better perspective and a different perspective than what you had prior, and then you go back to your old job. So I, I think but they're... It'd be amazing if they could do it. Um, somebody's going to argue throughput on the courses, costs, all these other things. Um, but anytime you can get somebody out of what they do day to day and into something different, even if it's on the other side of the base, on the other side of the squadron, um, I think there's benefit for it. And I mean, you said it perfectly earlier. Like one thing that we have baked in is like our time. And so if a course already exists and the course is not full, you know, sending someone TDY for a couple weeks is, 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 I mean, it's not even budget desk. It's something smaller than budget desk. Uh, so yeah, again, like I, I talk from, uh, from way out here in the cheap seats, but, uh, but they're, they're cool. I'm in the same seats now. So yeah, (laughs) well, happy to have you the, uh, so, uh, one of the things we kind of talked before we started recording about the, uh, the presidential leadership school that you went to. Uh, so can you explain that and kind of what people could expect if they wanted to go? Yeah, so there's a, there's a program. I had no idea about it until about 2018. It's called the Presidential Leadership Scholarship Program. And so four of the presidential libraries, George W. Bush, George Bush Jr., President Clinton, and then LBJ. So those four presidential libraries all are in Arkansas and Texas. They got together, and by the way, it's two Democrat, two Republicans, so it's a, um, it is not a political, uh, politically leaning fellowship. Uh, they got together and said, we want to continue and we want to focus on leadership. And so they brought together all four of those libraries and joined to, to build this program. It's a six-month program. It has nothing to do with the military. I had to get my commander to approve it, um, it as I was applying because what it means is you're, you're gone one weekend a month uh, to go visit a library and to go learn from other people and other, uh, other scholars and then um, various people at that library. And so I got us, I got my commander to approve it to say if I was accepted that they would allow me to go. Um, luckily, I was accepted. I was the only active duty person in my class. And we had about seven other veterans of various types, meaning some had 20 years in, some did four years. Um, and the rest of the people had not, didn't even know about the military. They had no ties to the military whatsoever, um, which was great. So it exposed me to this group very different from the groups that I normally hang out with because normally they're on base or, you know, we have a lot of shared experience. Um, That process, once we got in, is every month we would go to a different presidential library. Um, We would learn from leaders within that administration. And so maybe the chief of staff or um, one of the secretaries uh, during that time frame. And then in the two libraries where the president is still alive, we, we spent time with the presidents themselves. And so spending a day um, with President Bush and another with President Clinton was was amazing. And regardless of where you lean politically, getting to talk to somebody um, about their time in in the presidency, the decisions that they had to make, some of the, the pros and cons of each one and how they thought about the way things were going right now was fascinating. Um, we were there. We started last January. So we started as the Russians started to build up 
um, on the not just Crimean or in Crimea, but on the Ukrainian border, and then as they actually moved in. And so being able to talk to President Clinton and President Bush about prior instances and interactions between them and Putin um, and just Russia in general and NATO, it was it was massively valuable. And so being able to use those lessons as part of your leadership journey, I think, was amazing. And so that was a six month program. Um, after that time, you move into alumni status, which I am now in. So uh, every summer applications come out. So over the summer applications for the 2023 class came out. They were selected in December and they start this week, actually, in their first uh, module, they call it. So their first grouping of programming is happening in D.C. And so I'll actually I'll go have dinner and hang out with them this weekend um, to get to, you know, uh, hang out with the people they're hanging out with, listen to the speakers that they're you know speaking to and have dinner and share some time with them. Um, and that'll continue. And then what ends up happening is this program every year has a big alumni um, session. And so every fall, the, all the alumni kind of come together in one location and then hang out with those living presidents. And so um, hopefully we'll be able to hang out with President Bush and President Clinton again and hang out with the rest of the alumni. And all of them are doing amazing things from investment making to running major nonprofits um, to major to small nonprofits and, you know, as authors. And it's just it is a group of people that I hadn't come across in the military. Um, they're all very mission driven, but they chose to push that passion into a different direction by helping the homeless or, or less fortunate or um, suicidal ideation. I mean, just a wide swath of causes. Um, and then all the alumni help each other with their programs. And so it's just it's one of the greatest groups of people that I've ever been able to hang out with. Um, and I can't recommend that program more. Yeah. Well, awesome. I mean, it sounds pretty amazing. The, uh, so I know it's probably going to be difficult, but, uh, if you had to pick what is the, what was one of the most impactful programs or experiences you had, whether it was military or outside the military, uh, that really affected the way you kind of do things or affected how you perceive things or live your life? You're right. It's hard to, to pick one. Um, it, it probably would be basic training and, and it's hard to say whether, you know, that had such a profound impact because I was 18 years old and it was just that time where you're kind of looking for something new. Um, but uh, I wasn't a person who, you know, grew up my entire life wanting to join. My parents were not in the military. I didn't know much about it when I joined and I ended up joining and after uh, that was just a, it was a, game changer of an experience for me. And it put me on this path that I'm on now. And I think everything that, um, you know, I've been able to do and provide for my family has been because of that decision. Um, I've had fun courses. I've had uh, really cool deployments, uh, you know, fun deployments and really hard deployments, but great missions. I've been with a lot of great teams and, and units, but I think if you, if you put one experience that probably uh, was it and then from there there's been plenty of others the both programs that we talked about earlier were huge for me but i, I only have a couple you know I've, I've only been in that pls program for over a year so i've got a year to go on i've got 23 years to see how that one decision has kind of put me on a certain path so if you ask me in 22 more years maybe i'll say something different all right we'll put it on the calendar well the uh no that's i think that's amazing and i and i think it goes to show how much like joining in the military and serving and doing those things can just affect your perspective in your life, you mm -hmm. know, because it is, it is not very, it's not that common. Like you think it's common because you work with a ton of military people, but then in the real world, when you don't live in a military town, you realize how few people interact with military members. Yep. And uh, yeah, it's, 
it's cool. And I think luckily I've only had good experiences with people who, you know, see me in uniform and, and they're appreciative, you know, it's not, not something crazy. Um, so, uh, Illyria, let's talk yeah. about, uh, so how they get started, what are they working on? And then we'll, we'll do a deep dive into AI after that. Yeah. So I was, uh, I, I was fortunate. So my, I, like I said, I just transitioned out of the military. So there was a, a team at Google. Google has this place called Google X, which is their, um, it's kind of their innovation lab. It's where the kind of weird ideas go. Um, and they, they build them there and they figure out if they work. Uh, so Google was building this thing where they build really large stratospheric balloons and try to use those balloons to float them over uh, a country and provide internet to that country. And so it came in really handy. So this was an operational capability for Google for many years. It came in really handy after any sort of natural disaster because they could float this new, um, it's almost like cell towers, internet, all these things and just communication and put it over a country. Um, after a while, uh, my CEO now, he decided that he, uh, he wanted to buy this technology. And so he, he bought the technology and brought it into this company, Illyria. And so the company does two main things. It's not a... It's a Google spin out, but it's not part of Google anymore. It's a separate company. Um, but one is it orchestrates large communication across the air domain, sea domain, space, um, and builds an architecture that can continually morph. So if you've heard of um, self-healing mesh networks, you'll hear that word in the military a lot or that phrase. That's what the company does. And then there's another side of it that does free space optics. And this is sending communication uh, through optical light, through actually coding the wavelength of light in a laser and sending that. And so sending really high data transmit rates through lasers, uh, through really long uh, swaths of territory. And so um, those are the two things. And when you mix those things together, you're able to provide some really high level communication to places that didn't have it before. Um, or if they did have that communication, it adds resilience and optionality between those layers in a way that they didn't have it before. And these, uh, maybe I'm misunderstanding, but in my brief uh, investigation, it's a air or it's a surface to surface transmission. It can be an air to surface transmission, it can oh, be surface ooh. to space. Lasers are lasers. Wherever you can put the laser, wherever you can put that wavelength, depending on how much power you're throwing at it, you can put it in that area. So it could be air to ground, air to space, space to ground, space to space, ground to ground. You could have two, I, camera's a little smaller. You could have two <laughs> optical heads right here and, and pass the laser back and forth. But up until now, most of the um, optical communication has been right or in the fair, in fairly slow uh, ranges. And so this team has been doing some amazing things with it and their engineers are just, uh, they're, they're geniuses. And so they, they were able to, to figure out some things and now can go much further, um, which means now you can get huge rates of data um, to maybe islands that never had it before or to uh, a boat um, that's out there by itself. or maybe you don't need lots of data, you need to be able to send some data really quickly. And so instead of waiting to download a bunch of data off a satellite, you can blast it all um, very quickly. And so uh, that company was coming out of stealth mode as I was transitioning out of the Air Force. Um, and I was fortunate enough to, to get an interview and, and jump on the team. And so I'm running their, their public sector. And so that's working with all government agencies across uh, US government and really across the world. Well, and the, the reason I ask is because now, you know, a lot of times we're talking about light. So like line of sight. So beyond mm -hmm. line of sight is that capability where theoretically you can, you can send it as far or as 
as far around the world as you need if you have ground to something in the air or space and then back to the ground, I assume? Or Correct. How, so with enough yeah. relay stations, and this is how, you know, beyond line of sight works, as long as you have those relay stations, you can send signals wherever you want. And so what you'll start to see is uh, a lot of the RF communication that's, that's in space right now and even on the ground right now um, will start to transition to optical uh, communication. Optical communication is a... It, it allows you to share spectrum. When you have two things right next to each other and they're both pushing RF, they could very easily uh, unintentionally jam each other. And what ends up happening is you have unclear communication. And so if you have sight to sight, so laser head to laser head or optical head to optical head, laser communication, very small beam, you can send a lot of information very easily um, and it's much lower power. Yeah, and then, I mean, how does uh, weather, you know, like, was it diffusion, all that kind of stuff. I assume it plays into it does. Uh, some aspect of it. Yeah. So, you know, mist, moisture, um, any of that in the atmosphere, anything that changes the atmospheric conditions will affect a laser. Uh, you can change the way the um, propagation of the laser. You can change the actual bandwidth of the laser or the wavelength. And so there's a couple things you can do. And then there's certain things, you know, if you stand in front of it, you, there's no way that you're penetrating skin or some of these other things, at least with most of the lasers that we use right now. Um, but it allows you to communicate in situations that you may not have been able to communicate before. So now uh, we talked a little bit about AI and, and quantum type stuff. So are these going to work together or are, are these going to be kind of, because obviously quantum computing, all that stuff is a lot of data transfer and I, I would assume. So, so how are, how are those working together or are they not? So AI and quantum specifically working together? No, well, sorry, the the uh, laser kind of transmission of, of data and everything like that. Yeah, so, you know, laser communication, I think, works really well with quantum, especially if you're in, it's called coherent light. So you're actually sending photons back and forth because if you do it correctly, you can, you can keep the state of that photon, which is what you need for, uh, for the quantum state to continue. And so what you're going to see on the military side right now is, there's a lot of research being done on quantum computing, which is great. Um, but what you're, you'll see happen a lot more right now is quantum sensors. And so sensors that are able um, to be way more refined than your standard sensors using quantum theory. And then you've got post-quantum cryptography. And so this is uh, encryption of data in a way that protects it so quantum computers can't open it up essentially. Um, I'm, I'm, it's a wide overview of the science behind it, but those are two um, sectors of the quantum world that are commercialized and are able to, to be used right now. And so you'll see a bunch of companies spring up and you'll see the military um, working on using uh, both those technologies right now while they're doing all the research and development on actual quantum computers. And it's it's my understanding, and it definitely could be wrong, that uh, that once like quantum is around and commonly used, I don't want to say, I guess commonly, but is, is able to be used like most encryption, everything that is now currently secure will be pretty much hackable. That's, that that's the thought is um, because it's able, because those quantum computers are able to use those qubits. That's the, the bits that it uses to try so many things so quickly you can brute force through a lot of the encryption. But what will happen is every time we develop a new technology that can break encryption, we develop a new encryption and then we develop a new technology. And so it's this, it's this stair-step approach. Before we had the encryption we have today, um, 
we had others. And so if we go back to Enigma machines and if we go back to code talkers and all these other types of encryption, so there'll always be people who write code um, and by code, I mean, in this sense, uh, ways of keeping things secure. And then there's going to be other technology that comes out and beats it. And it's just how fast can we move? And when we get back into, um, you know, military acquisition, making sure that we have a acquisition pathway and we have a contracting mechanism to stay ahead of whatever the threat is. Um, and then you see the same thing happening in the artificial intelligence space. So we had people in the military talking about artificial intelligence for the last 30, 40 years. Um, we actually stood up, we, the Air Force, um, my team, the Strategic Studies Group, helped stand up a team at MIT. And so there's the AIA, the Air Force Accelerator at MIT. And this is about, last I checked, 14 airmen who work at MIT every day, all day long. And they work on cutting edge research with um, PhD research analysts at MIT, and they, they publish papers. They also run a lot of the AI training for the Air Force. And so some of your people may have gone through some sort of um, AI training, whether it was in Boston or um, on Digital University, um, you know, on their own computer. But that team, enlisted officer and civilian, have been the ones building that training and making sure that they advise the program offices, the Secretary of the Air Force, the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, as new AI technology comes to play so they can help make sure that whatever we're buying, whatever we're doing, um, it, we'll call it is AI informed. They understand what the realm of the possible is when they're making these purchases um, and when they're trying to develop these capabilities. And so um, that's slowly expanding as we get more people across the Air Force and the DOD trained in artificial intelligence. Um, there's talks of maybe having a civilian um, specialty at some point, meaning an actual civilian job series for that. And so as any new emerging technology unfolds, you'll start to see the, the kind of the workforce shift in that direction. Um, and so the Air Force is, is doing the exact same thing with the rest of uh, really the rest of the world. Where do you see between AI and quantum computing, uh, where do you see some applications and what do you think will be more impactful uh, you know, in a, in a greater, broader perspective, and then a more like specific airmen's per perspective. Yeah. I mean, even if you look at, uh, you know, everybody's talking about chat GPT and if you really want to talk artificial intelligence, um, there's a, a guy out there, Mike Kanan, who's, he was, he's an Intel guy. He was at MIT as the, as the DO for the AI accelerator. He's working on his, um, uh, master's at Harvard right now, still an active duty, uh, airman doing great things. And he's, He's one of the, the foremost experts in the Air Force on this. Um, John Radovan, another guy, great guy out there doing good things. But I can give you a list of names if you want to talk AI. But some of the interesting use cases is think of any place where we have um, tons of documents that we need to be able to look through and make sense of. And so let's say, you know, everybody's probably um, seen all the news on ChatGPT. Imagine if you loaded into OpenAI's platform. Imagine if you loaded all of our acquisition documents and you used it to ask very simple acquisition questions, um, or you opened up all of our research at Air University um, and then used it for research and almost like to help with the library uh, in, in order to put lots of documents and to make sense of those documents in a really um, digestible format instead of just trying to read as much as possible. Um, so those are use cases you could use right now. Imagine taking all of the doctrinal documents that we have across the DOD, putting them together, and then seeing where there are pieces that contradict each other. Because some of these things are built over years, um, and it's some subsection rule somewhere. Uh, you could do the same thing with, with patents, um, really any situation where you have tons and tons of, of information, and it's really hard for one person to understand that information. Um, we... 
the, the military uses it right now. There's, there's aircraft and there's satellites that go and take pictures all over the earth. Imagine if you're one of those imagery analysts that have to look at those pictures every day and all the pictures you looked at today are just clouds. You're not even looking at anything. You, you open it up and it takes forever to open and then you look at it and it's a cloud and you have to go, nope, not reading that one. And imagine your whole day looks like that by using yeah. object detection essentially, but a, a version of AI, what you could do and what we do do is we take those pictures, we analyze them all real quick to say, is it clouds? Is it not clouds? If it's not, now I'm going to have an analyst actually look at it. Is that something in worth spending their time doing instead of having a first line of defense of somebody having to open all those files? And so there's lots of little use cases like that. And I say little, meaning they only use a portion of, of AI, this large um, behemoth of a technology, um, but they, they actually provide a lot of value for people um, uh, across the Air Force. And so more of those use cases will continue to come up as the technology gets greater. When we've seen, uh, because talking about just spending man hours to to find the answer, you know, we've talked about it previously in uh, the podcast about how uh, debrief, you know, test debriefs or just mm -hmm. any, you know, flight debrief in, in the fighter world is literally just painstakingly pouring over, you know, your your avionics and your displays and then the, the God's eye view flight of the aircraft. Yep. And you're, you know, and it'd be like, man, if they, it'd be great if we could just give specified criteria and then the ai tell us where we deviate you know yep. and uh but, and oh go ahead oh uh, what i was going to say is there's a lot of situations like that where um where we have large amounts of data we're having some sort of machine interface to go over it will help us what it ends up doing a lot of the time is identifying all kinds of issues there's things that we won't do because we don't have the technology to do them then once we finally have the technology we realize there's massive governance issues there's massive policy issues within our own policy that we've just never um we've never pushed up against uh that limit on, on the the aircraft side we're doing predictive maintenance with artificial intelligence where we're taking all that data from engines and sensors and um, pieces all over the aircraft and when a part is supposed to go out at 300 hours we find out that actually it may be it's going out at 250. If we know it's going out at 250, we can start ordering that part at 210 because we know we normally get about 40 hours in the time that it takes that part to show up because the supply chain's a little slow. And by doing so, our on-time rate and our sortie generation rate for aircraft goes up uh, immensely. And again, that's it would take a lot of people a long time to figure that out and to go through that data, and now they don't have to. They have to at the beginning to build the structure, but once they do, it allows us to put all that information into a format that provides actual insight instead of info to a decision maker, but insight so that decision maker can make a decision. Yeah. Well, and I look at it not to not to steal the idea of the 1980s movie War Games, uh, but you know now we use AI to run war game scenarios. You oh, know of we. We know what we can do. We assume we know what the bad guy can do. Let's see how fights work out, you know? Yeah, and this is why I, I like the uh, the, AFI, or the AI dogfighting challenges because they were able to build dogfighting AI and put it through thousands, hundreds of thousands of iterations to figure out what the best move for the aircraft was. Maybe not the best move for the pilot, um, but when you have pilotless aircraft and those aircraft can are only limited by the physics of the of the aircraft and the thrust and the G's that it can pull, there's some amazing things that you can end up doing. And so you're seeing it start to be tested across the Air Force. Um, if we go back to that Edwards example, there are companies that have now thrown AI algorithms on a, there's a, an F-16 Vista. Um, it's a test aircraft that sits at Edwards um, that's got a ton of modifications that allows it to do some very unique things. Um, in that aircraft, they're using to start throwing algorithms on it. 
to figure out how it reacts in a real um, full-size aircraft. We've thrown AI algorithms on much smaller aircraft for a while now, um, but what does it look like on an MQ-9? What does it look like on an F-16? Um, where are the limitations? What do we need to do? Um, and how do we do it safely? And so they're trying to figure that out right now. When I, you know, I watched that, uh, you know, the AI dogfight, and I had so many questions. Because again, like when you have perfect information and you know exactly spatially energy states of the adversary, their nose position, their all those kind of things, current G, like computers can make that happen. But the, I'm really, really excited when AI gets to the point where it has data gaps, where, you know, once the adversary is not off their nose, they just have to make a smart decision. Yep. And really, because that's where I think the rubber meets the road with, uh, with AI is when they start making decisions that humans have to make and they make as good, if not better decisions. And that's where, that's what excites me about AI. Well, and I think if we go back to the maintenance example, you know, uh, an algorithm can figure out when to order this part. That's yeah. an easy thing to do, but it took time. It took a lot of time, a lot of structure and a lot of learning throughout that process until it was able to do that task. And so anybody who thinks that um, the algorithms are going to steal jobs from everybody, it's not going to happen. It, what it'll do is it'll, they'll do jobs that we were doing before that frees us up to do other jobs. There's, yeah. we've got a long time before, uh, you know, we run out of work, not only in the, in the DOD, but just in the world. And so, um, allowing you and me to, to focus on things that we actually enjoy or things that we're actually good at is much better than um, forcing us to do a lot of uh, rote memorization work or uh, mundane tasks or things that can be better done by, by some other machine. But it takes, it takes a ton of effort, time, development, um, lessons learned, and a ton of failure before you get there. And so it's a long process for any career field or organization. Yeah. I dig it. Well, we, uh, we got to get out of here. We're running out of okay. time, but Ian, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us on the show. I'll put your LinkedIn on the uh, show notes. Yeah, so if anybody, if anybody wants to reach out and just say, Hey, or tell them you appreciated the episode, uh, remember info kodiakshack.com. Let us know what you want to hear. Check out the website, kodiakshack.com. And, uh, thank you everybody. Thanks again, Ian. No, appreciate you having me. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.